Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 10.1, Bondage by Any Other Name is Just as Shite. Welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana. And for me, 2023 is the year when y'all will stop playing in my goddamn face. That's not a request. It is a demand. And it will be honored. Today, the individual who hath played in mine face and thus incurred mine wrath and ire is actually one of my favorite podcasters, Mr. Dan Carlin who recently, or I don't know, sometime within the last 12 months, did a podcast episode that was almost six hours long about the transatlantic slave trade. Oh, when I saw this, musers, I was nervous. I was wary, but I was also curious. And once again, I have looked upon whiteness and found it wanting. Now, as a fellow history podcaster, I know how difficult it can be to find content to talk about. And Dan even says that multiple people begged him not to tackle that particular subject. I wish he had listened to them because the result was nearly six hours of treading overly familiar ground and repeating tropes that could easily be debunked if one just spent a modicum of a minute seeing history through the perspective of someone other than the slave owners. That's difficult to do, of course, when slaves and peasants were so disenfranchised that they seldom had the time or the knowledge necessary to write down their own thoughts on their enslavement. But in the words of the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the riot is the language of the unheard. Or as my West Indian family would say, who don't hear must feel. And I'm sorry, that's right, is the language of the oppressed, but you get my meaning. Several times throughout the episode, Dan Carlin says, we have no way of knowing how the African slaves felt about this, or we have no way of knowing how the indigenous felt about this. And the whole time it's like the wholesale slaughter of their entire community, inhumane treatment and working conditions and unfair laws that disenfranchise people and reclassify their identity as something beneath whiteness. So it's really not hard to figure out how someone may have felt about seeing their entire way of life be decimated by invading white colonizers or how they may have felt about being chained to the bottom of a slave ship and kidnapped to work themselves to death on a sugar plantation. But I'm going to go ahead and take a stab in the dark and say they probably didn't like it very much. Now, I also recognize that I might, he might have been sarcastic, but also like, how many times do you have to say that? Because now I'm thinking maybe you you do think that it's impossible to know how a slave might have felt about being a slave. Like, I don't know. Maybe British people are right when they say Americans don't really understand the nuances of sarcasm. Because now I'm wondering, does this big grown man who's read all these books and is so smart really not understand that slaves in general, like on a basic level, didn't enjoy being slaves? Hmm. 
that that DeSantis education somehow got to you all the way in Santa Monica, California in the 1950s and 60s. I don't know how, but it seems like it did. Another thing that he said multiple times that I am so tired of hearing is that you can't judge the people of the past by the values of the present. So first of all, my name is Dana and I do what the hell I want. I don't care how mad it makes you. I am going to judge them by the standards of the present because I can. They're dead and you can't whoop my ass. So it's gonna happen. Also, here's the thing. Slaves were also people in that same past and they also had values. And one thing that they valued more than anything was their freedom. They valued it so much that they fought for and agitated for it constantly. So if we're talking values of the past, why is it that the values of the enslaved are not taken into consideration? There were also other, you know, white people of those times in that same past whose values did not conform to the idea of slavery being a good or germane thing. Why can't we view history through their lens? Don't worry, Dan. Me and Sway, we got some answers for those questions and more. Furthermore, where slaves and peasants may have lacked the written words to describe their feelings of oppression, they did not lack for a willingness to express their disdain in other ways. There has been no time in history where enslaved people simply accepted their condition or made it a core part of their identity, despite what a well-meaning but utterly clueless white man on TikTok tried to say otherwise. Slave was just that. It was a condition. It was never an identity for the enslaved. And so basically what he was trying to say is that if you were born into slavery, generations born into slavery, then you had no way to conceptualize freedom. Um, yes, we did. That was literally all slaves conceptualized was freedom in so many ways. But you know, TikTok has limits and they'll delete comments and just whatever. I had to let him go. But uh, yeah, it was a condition, not an identity. And slaves never lost sight of the concept and the goal of freedom. And in this series, I'm going to talk about all the ways and all of the places and all of the instances where slaves, peasants, indentured servants, uh, serfs, and other oppressed peoples let the world know exactly how they felt about their condition. Chapter one, the world's truly oldest profession. One of the earliest recorded instances of slavery was in the third dynasty of Ur, also called the Neo-Sumerian Empire, which was a 22nd to 21st century BC Sumerian ruling dynasty based in the city of Ur, which is near present-day Basra in southern Iraq. It was a short-lived territorial political state, which some historians consider to have been a nascent empire. The third dynasty, dynasty, I don't know, it's going to change, guys, of Ur is commonly abbreviated as Ur-3 by historians who study this period, and it arose sometime after the fall of the Akkad dynasty. It has long been posited that the common laborer was nothing more than a serf under this dynasty, but new analysis and documents reveal a possibly different picture. Gangs of laborers can be divided into various groups. Certain groups did indeed seem to work under compulsion, while others worked in order to keep their property or to get rations from the state. And still others were free men and women for whom social mobility was a possibility. 
Many families traveled together in search of labor, and such laborers could amass property, private property, and even be promoted to higher positions. So Ur-3 is one of the earliest instances of the concept of private property and state property. Before that, there was a more collectivist land usage. There was also a huge population boom because of the the Near East agricultural revolution, and that's why people became more sedentary, switched from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural societies, and developed the concept of private property, including human private property, I guess. So this is quite a different picture of a laborer's life than the previous belief that they were afforded no way to move out of the social group that they were born into. Slaves also made up a crucial group of labor for the state. One estimate is that two-fifths of chattel slaves mentioned in the administrative documents of the Earth 3 dynasty were not born slaves, but became slaves due to accumulating debt, being sold by family members, and other reasons. However, one surprising feature of this period is that slaves seem to have been able to accumulate some assets and even property during their lifetimes such that they could buy their freedom. Extant documents give details about specific deals for slaves' freedoms negotiated with their owners. Chapter 2, A Hierarchy of Bondage As this series concerns the revolts and uprisings of slaves, serfs, indentured servants, peasants, and other marginalized and subaltern peoples, it's important to understand the distinctions between these conditions and the purposes that they served. It would also probably help if I explained what subaltern and subalternity is. In one of my previous episodes, I think it was a special one on discursive formation, I identified the subaltern or subalternity as a condition of subordination brought about by colonization or other forms of economic, social, racial, linguistic, and or cultural dominance. In post-colonial studies and in critical theory, the term subaltern designates and identifies the colonial populations who are socially, politically, and geographically excluded from the hierarchy of power of an imperial colony and from the metropolitan homeland of an empire. Antonio Gramsci coined the term subaltern to identify the cultural hegemony that excludes and displaces specific people and social groups from the socioeconomic institutions of society in order to deny their agency and voices in colonial politics. I love Gramsci. What all this has to do with identifying and categorizing serfs, slaves, peasants, etc., is that by identifying not only the institutionalizing factors that create these various conditions, but also where these conditions place one in society, you gain a clearer sense of what they were fighting for and against and why. Peasants, serfs, slaves, and indentured servants have always coexisted and they've always been aware of the other's conditions, sometimes seeing the unifying factors in their conditions, such as in Bacon's Rebellion, and sometimes siding with the oppressive majority against another oppressed group in the hopes of elevating their status, which is what a lot of European immigrant groups did after coming to the United States and being discriminated against. Peasants are, by the dictionary definition, poor farmers of low social status who own or rent small pieces of land for cultivation, chiefly in historical use or with reference to subsistence farming. Peasants rarely engage in trade and primarily sell their labor in exchange for the things that they need for survival if they don't make those things themselves. The biggest threats to a peasant's existence are slaves and indentured servants, who perform many of the same agrarian functions as peasants but don't require payment. 
Peasants in slaveholding societies are also sometimes referred to as freedmen, and the ruling class tends to both despise and fear peasants because by virtue of being freemen, they are harder to coerce and more expensive to beguile. Similar to peasants are serfs. Serfs are agricultural laborers bound to work on the Lord's estate. In much of the world, peasants were serfs first, unable to leave the land they worked on to seek other employment. In Western Europe, the first waves of the Black Death undermined feudalism and serfdom as the mounting death tolls created a high demand and low supply of agricultural workers and serfs who then demanded better working conditions or more freedoms or else they would all leave and go to a neighboring fiefdom where they could get better treatment. Conversely, serfdom grew stronger in Central and Eastern Europe during this time period where it had previously been less common. And this was because of the Mongols' westward advances. The lords, who were called Volvoids or Boyars, offered security and protection from the Mongols if they would, in exchange for these peasants tilling the land and being bound to the land. Unlike slaves, serfs could not be bought, sold, or traded individually, but as they were tied to the land they worked, they could be bound to new lords if and when land changed hands. This was the case in Western Europe, but in feudal Russia, kolops could be traded like regular slaves, be abused with no rights over their own bodies, could not leave the land they were bound to, and could only marry with their lord's permission. Serfs who occupied a plot of land were required to work for the lord of the manor who owned that land. And in return, they were entitled to protection, justice, and the right to cultivate certain fields within the manor to maintain their own subsistence. Serfs were also often required to not only work the lord's fields, but also the mines and forests and labor to maintain roads and other infrastructure. A villain, not a villain, a villain, is a class of serf tied to the land under the feudal system. As part of the contract with the lord of the manor, they were expected to spend some of their time working on the lord's fields in return for the land. Villains existed under a number of legal restrictions that differentiated them from freedmen, and they could not leave the land without their lord's permission. Generally, Villains held their status not by birth, but by the land that they held, and it was also possible for them to gain manumission from their lords. The villainage system largely died out in England by 1500, with some forms of villainage being in use in France until 1789, which was the start of the French Revolution. The manor formed the basic unit of feudal society, and the lord of the manor and the Villains, and to a certain extent the serfs, were bound legally by taxation in the case of the former and economically and socially in the case of the latter. Indenture servitude is a form of labor in which a person is contracted to work without salary for a specific number of years. The contract, called an indenture, may be entered into voluntarily for purported eventual compensation or debt repayment, as was the case for many Indians who entered into indentured contracts with British merchants in Africa, other parts of the of Asia and in the Caribbean, or it may be imposed as a judicial punishment. Historically, it has been used to pay for apprenticeships, typically when an apprentice agrees to work for free for a master tradesman in order to learn the trade. This is similar to modern internships, but indentured servitude was for a fixed length of time, usually seven to 10 years. Later, it was also used as a way for a person to pay the cost of transportation to the American colonies. 
or colonies in the Americas, not just the ones, the 13. Like any loan, an indenture could be sold. Most employers had to depend on middlemen to recruit and transport the workers, so indentured workers were commonly bought and sold when they arrived at their destinations. Like the price of slaves, their price went up or down depending on supply and demand. When the indenture or loan was paid off, the worker was free and sometimes they might be given a plot of land. Indentured workers, unlike serfs and slaves, could usually marry, move about locally as long as they got their work done, read whatever they wanted, and take classes. A slave is someone who is forbidden to quit serving their master, has no legal rights, and is regarded as property rather than as a person, both by their master and by the state and society. Slavery typically involves slaves being made to perform some form of work while also having their location or residence dictated by their enslaver. Many historical cases of enslavement occurred as a result of breaking the law, becoming indebted, or suffering a military defeat. Other forms of slavery were instituted along demographic lines such as race. Slaves may be kept in bondage for life or for a fixed period of time after which they could be granted manumission or freedom. Although slavery is usually involuntary and involves coercion and violence, there are also cases where people voluntarily entered into slavery to pay a debt or to earn money due to poverty. In the course of human history, slavery has been a typical feature of civilization, but as I intend to illustrate, it was never universally accepted, especially not by the enslaved. Slaves have been owned privately by individuals, but have also been under state ownership. For example, the Kisaing were women from low caste in pre-modern Korea who were owned by government officials known as Hojang and who were required to provide entertainment to the aristocracy. Tribute labor is compulsory labor for the state and has been used in various iterations such as corvée, mita, and repartimiento. Internment camps and concentration camps also utilize slave labor. There are four main types of slavery, chattel, debt bondage, forced labor, and child marriage. Chattel slavery classes slaves as personal property owned by the enslaver. Like livestock, they can be bought and sold at will. While it was not present at all times and places in the classical world, chattel slavery did exist in ancient times and it was practiced in places like the Roman Empire. Chattel slavery reached its modern extreme in the Americas during European colonization. Debt bondage occurs when a person works to pay off a debt by pledging his or herself as collateral. The services required to pay the debt and their duration may be undefined. Debt bondage can be passed on from generation to generation with children being required to pay off their progenitor's debt. And it is the most widespread form of slavery today. Debt bondage is most prevalent in South Asia where the money marriage system requires girls to marry to settle the debts of her male kinsmen. And the chukri system found in parts of Bengal coerces women into prostitution in order to pay debts. Forced labor is used to describe an individual who is forced to work against their own will under threat of violence or some other punishment. This may also include institutions not commonly classified as slavery, such as serfdom, conscription, and penal labor. While some unfree laborers, such as serfs, have substantive de jure legal and traditional rights, they also have no ability to terminate the arrangements under which they work and are frequently subject to forms of coercion, violence, and restrictions on their activities and movement outside of their place of work. Forced marriages or early marriages are often considered a type of slavery. Forced marriage continues to be practiced in parts of the world, including some parts of Asia and Africa and in immigrant communities in the West. 
Sacred prostitution is where girls and women are pledged to priests or those of higher caste, such as the practice of Devadasi in South Asia or fetish slaves in West Africa. Marriage by abduction occurs in many places in the world today, with a 2003 study finding a national average of 69% of marriages in Ethiopia being through abduction. So now that we have identified and classified the subaltern, we can go forth and discuss all the ways that they said, girl, fuck this. Next episode, I will be discussing slavery and serfdom in the ancient world and the resistance to it. Join me next time for more Musings on History. History.